millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to this week's Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will influence politics in the future. I'm your host Jonathan Tanner and this week's guest is Jamie Suskind. Jamie was once named the best young debater in the world. Today he's a barrister, alumni of Harvard and Oxford universities and most presciently he's the author of the book Future Politics, Living Together in a World Transformed by Technology. The book provides a framework for thinking about the ways in which technology will change politics, so it's really relevant to this podcast, and our conversation covers whether software engineering is becoming a political career choice, the new forms of power at large in the modern world, and a critical discussion about the difference between blue and purple. I hope you enjoy it. My first question, Jamie, is to ask you something that I've always wondered about myself and want to get your view on. Having read your book, which I think is really accomplished and a real tour de force of a lot of the issues we've talked about on this podcast to date how satisfying is it having written the book <laughs> it, do you know what that moment where you finally send it off after it's been consuming your every thought and every waking hour for y- literally years it, it is a great moment I, I did enjoy it it was then replaced by a sort of mortal terror about whether it was any good and whether it would be well received uh, and if anyone would ever buy it but actually seeing it in print and sometimes the joy of seeing it in people's hands people you've never met it is really cool i found it very, i found it was super gratifying um but it was a slog and how are you doing on the critical acclaim front <laughs> well that's that's for other people to answer look it's for a first-time author i'm pleased with the amount of attention it's got uh, particularly in this country but also in the states and elsewhere and you know what it's had some really nice write-ups in the sunday times in the guardian it was book of the day it's allowed the book to reach audiences precisely where i hoped it would reach political audiences but also people who are interested in tech and culture so i think if you'd offered me the publicity that it's got i would have snatched at it in a second and a quick question um more from personal intrigue before we get into some of the substance of the book um, and for regular government versus the robots listeners with this being a show that looks at how tech will affect politics in the future you have literally written the book on it so i'm looking forward to getting into the substance um but your book is peppered liberally with quotations from other great writers and thinkers and my question is do you drop those in as you're going or do you kind of read what you've written and go back and think about whether there are supporting quotes that can go in to kind of solidify the point that you've made that's a fair question the answer is both so sometimes i'll be making a point which i think is an original point and then i'll think 
Mm, this sounds a little bit like something Marx might have said in a different context. And that would probably be an indicator that maybe it isn't that original a point, but I've, I was somehow inspired by something that I'd read earlier. And I'll go back to my notes and see, or go back to the texts and see what Marx did in fact say on this or that. I was fortunate in a sense that I came at it with a strong background in political theory and in jurisprudence, which is where a lot of the writers that you mentioned come from. So I have a good sense of the shape of Western philosophy, and I also am a good note taker. So I have lots and lots of notes and quotation sheets and notebooks and things which I was able to delve into which made my job a lot easier but I'd be lying if I didn't say that a big part of this book was the activity which few have the luxury to undertake of reading a tech book in the morning you know about machine learning or something and then spending the afternoon reading David Hume and John Locke and Aristotle and Marx and seeing what the latter might have had to say about the former because I was convinced when I started the book that there was this great wellspring of learning in the Western philosophical tradition that could be used at the very least to clarify and shed light on some of our current predicaments. And I personally think I was vindicated in that instinct because I do think that a lot of the ideas of the past are still relevant today. And the very act of determining where they cease to be relevant is an important one because it allows us as a culture to move on and to find the new words and the new ideas for the 21st century. So the answer to your question, it was a short question, I'm giving you a long answer, is that I had the, the luxury of being able to study political theory and technology in tandem. And it was no surprise to me when it turned out that the two could actually sit quite well together if you were patient with it. And you say in the book that you want you take things back to first principles in terms of analysing what the future politics might look like. What do you mean when you say going back to first principles? Well, I think a lot of discussions about the future of tech jump straight to things like how should we be regulating Facebook or what should we do about next month's congressional hearing with the head of Twitter? And underpinning all of these questions are much deeper questions about the the basic building blocks that we use to think and speak about politics. And I say there are four, power, freedom, democracy and justice. A lot of the debates that we have about tech boil down to debates about one of those four concepts. I don't claim that all of them do, because my work is very much just a starting point. But it helps to think clearly about the issues that face us, you know, down the road with with questions like regulation. If you properly are able to diagnose a problem, critically, frame it philosophically in terms of, you know, what is said to be the issue here and what are the potential responses to it, ask yourself what might we have said in response to this problem in the past or to similar problems in the past and then finally to ask what might be the solution to it and the solution first of all might be a kind of moral or philosophical solution you might say well i think we'd be satisfied if um, our algorithms resulted in just outcomes in outcomes that were consistent with recognized principles of justice so when they distribute jobs and insurance and the like around the world and then of course there's a policy and a regulation question well how do you achieve that end but most what I'm dissatisfied with about the state of the art when it comes to writing about tech just now is I think a lot of people jump to the final questions, whereas I think the world has changed so fast and so fundamentally that it pays to go back to first principles before answering those latter ones because you're likely to get clearer answers. And can you give me some, if those kind of first principles in the kind of canon of political theory around power, freedom, liberty, justice, you know, those are huge, huge philosophical concepts. Um how do you arrive at those from debates around tech? So can you give me an example of how 
uh, tech is changing the nature of power or is making us more or less free yes absolutely i mean of course as you know because you've read the book this is the meat of the book and in each of them with regards to each of those concepts i say you know what has this idea meant in the past how do we use it today and what what might it mean in the future power which i call the godfather of political concepts is a good place to start because i think the nature of power is fundamentally changing i think that technology gives those who own and control it power and that power is of a relatively new and interesting form in fact i think it takes three forms one is the ability to write rules that the rest of us have to follow so when your self-driving car refuses to go over the speed limit or indeed over a lower limit than the speed limit or park on a double yellow line or drive on territory which as gps systems tell it is trespassing you are subject to the rules in that technology just like you're subject to the rules of a platform which won't let you sign in if you don't have the password or type a tweet that's longer than a 280 characters we are at the mercy of code and in a world where tech increasingly surrounds us and we live our lives through it those who write the code will have a form of power because they'll be able to get us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise do and not to do things we would otherwise have done and crucially you know that form of power doesn't necessarily reside with governments a lot of the time it will reside with private firms the ones who manufacture and design technologies and who curate them once they're released into the world and that's an interesting change from the past you know these private entities who have the capacity to write the rules by which we live uh, but don't necessarily have the same standards of accountability and transparency that those who previously wrote the rules we might have expected them to have so that's form number one form number two is that technology scrutinizes us we generate more data every two hours now it's said than since the dawn of time until 2003 and that means almost every aspect of our lived experience is recorded and stored in permanent or semi-permanent form so that's where we go what we do who we hang out with what we care about how we feel and that matters to power on two levels firstly the more that people know about us the easier it is to influence and manipulate us that's the basis of all online advertising you gather data and then you present products in the most attractive possible way based on what the data says we would find attractive it's increasingly the basis of political advertising as well so it said that cambridge analytica had up to five thousand data points of information for up to 200 million American voters when it came to the last US presidential election and that allowed them to micro-target at the individual level their message when it came to encouraging people to vote for Donald Trump. So that's a form of power because it allows people to influence us, to get us to do things we wouldn't otherwise have done. And again, it might not necessarily reside in the places where power has expected, we would have expected power to reside in the past. But power, the fact that we're always being watched, I think in due course, will also have an additional power effect which is to make us discipline ourselves so no one will have to force us to change our behavior because knowing that we're being watched we're less likely to do things that are sinful perceived as sinful or shameful or wrong and we can talk a little bit more about that later but i think that's an interesting and possibly unknowable form of power in the future and the third way that tech can be a form of power to those who own and control it is by regulating our perception of the world we rely on technologies to gather information about the world out there that's beyond our immediate perception. And which slice of reality we're presented with when we use a search function or a news function, or we look through an augmented reality system, which version of reality, which slice of reality matters. And it matters that you might see a different reality than I do. And so you and I might have different conceptions of true and false and right and wrong and disgusting and clean, or beautiful and ugly. And the capacity to shape people's perceptions in that way, which increasingly resides in technological systems, is a very powerful one. 
And so I look at all three of those forms of power that tech gives rise to, the ability to write rules, the ability to scrutinize, and the ability to mold our perception of the world. And I say, that's pretty new. And it's political. Now, when you think about politics, you might ordinarily think about the House of Lords or the House of Commons or legislators or elections, but nothing I've just spoken about relates to any of those things directly. It's a new and strange form of power that's emerging in our social system, and I think we need to develop the words and theories to describe it, and only then will we be in a place where we can say, well, what can we do about this? And the book goes on to use some of those words and explore some of those theories, but you talk as well about justice, and particularly in the section on social justice, the kind of outcomes of algorithms and the nature of algorithms. Uh, Algorithms and justice kind of sat next to each other for you in the future? Absolutely. So I talk about two different forms of justice. One is justice and distribution, and the other is justice and recognition. Justice and distribution is about uh, the allocation of stuff in society. So questions of inequality and poverty, whether resources should be redistributed from place A to place B. And in the past, I say, these were principally questions that were left initially to the market, and then then they were sort of rejigged by the state. And so some combination of the market forces and the state intervention would lead to a particular distribution of resources in society at at any given time. And, you know, people on the right and people on the left can disagree about what that distribution should look like and be. Increasingly, I say algorithms are going to sit within or alongside or above that system of market and state and play an important distributive role. So 72% of CVs are never read by human eyes anymore which means that access to a job, the most important thing you can get in the marketplace, is increasingly determined by systems and the way that they're coded and the data that they're fed. And again, we can talk about this more later, but sometimes it can go haywire, as the machine learning system used by Amazon did for many years by distributing jobs disproportionately to men. Um, Access to insurance, less of a problem in this country, but in other countries, crucial, whether it's health insurance or the like, determined by algorithms whose weightings and data input are often opaque to the end users the allocation of credit in the form of mortgages and loans increasingly done by algorithms there are companies which scan your facebook information to see if you are friends with people who default on their loans because that is a good indicator machine learning systems say of whether you will default on your loan and so it determines to a certain extent the terms on which you'll get credit if indeed you get credit at all and so in none of these examples do i say there's anything inherently wrong with the fact that algorithms are distributive players now but i do think that we have to wake up to the fact that they are which means that the principles of justice that we've traditionally brought to the market in the state should also in due course apply to algorithms and we shouldn't be satisfied with algorithms which distribute society's resources in ways that we consider according to established principles to be unjust or unfair so that's way number one that i see algorithms uh, interacting with the question of social justice the other is injustice in recognition There are forms of injustice which have nothing to do with how much stuff anyone has. So the husband who belittles and screams at his wife, or the master who demands that his slave kneels in the sand, or the person who screams racial obscenities at someone of colour that they see in the street. These are all forms of injustice, but they're not about who has stuff and who doesn't. They're about how we see each other and whether we treat each other as persons of equal moral worth. And whereas it used to be in the past that only human beings could create injustices of recognition, you know, it was only you and I who could be racist or offensive, in the, in the future systems will as well. So there are voice recognition systems that literally don't hear the voices of women 
because they've only been trained on male voices or face recognition systems that can't see people of color because they've been only been trained on white faces there was the passport issuance system the automated system in new zealand which declined to issue a passport to a man of asian extraction because it said that the photograph he submitted contained uh, a person whose eyes were closed and that's because that system had only been trained on non-asian faces so if you imagine the upset and injustice sense that you feel when your computer crashes or your iphone breaks imagine the next time you don't get a job or you can't access a building or you are declined um, permission to achieve or, or receive some form of social welfare product on the basis of your race or your gender or whatever inadvertent social quality that you hold has been coded into the algorithms that are designed to recognize you or not so I see algorithms as important for both questions of recognition and questions of distribution. It strikes me that uh, on that question of recognition, that people, the saying don't judge a book by its cover um, and the kind of breadth of humanity and the human experience and the unpredictability of human action are such that people would instinctively react against being judged by an algorithm in that way. And I guess that's something that... You know, for me, when I go to the airport and I put my passport in the machine reader and it doesn't read it because my passport's knackered, and I feel frustrated by that, and that's just such a low-level piece of frustration. Mm. Whereas if somebody decides you can't have access to a mortgage or so on, based on an analysis that doesn't allow for that kind of fairly unique human element um, of decision-making, I think that that feels like something which is a significant game-changer for how people feel power is operating on them and feel what is fair my question though other than that reflection is is actually about what you're saying about markets and to ask you perhaps a dangerously open-ended question is a market still free if its outcomes are determined by an algorithm well i don't need the answer to that question i wouldn't suggest that outcomes are determined by algorithms i think i just i just don't have the evidence to make such a claim i just think i think conceptually you can see algorithms as a sort of player in the market so they you know uh stock trading algorithms literally act as buyers and sellers um, other times they are deployed in market situations like in the ones that i just described so they affect market outcomes according to principles that aren't just the principles of supply and demand um, and of course sometimes they're deployed by the state for the state's own ends but again in a way that can influence outcomes in ways that are neither related to the principles of supply and demand market principles or indeed related to principles of justice which the state should stand for so i don't know the answer to your question uh i don't claim that markets determine that algorithms determine market outcomes i just say that if you're interested in social justice in how we distribute society's resources and how we treat each other and see each other then you should be interested in algorithms and in all of these concepts power liberty justice the state is often seen as the ultimate arbiter of these things or protector of these things but it strikes me from reading your book and from the experience of interviewing plenty of people on this podcast that we're approaching a situation where tech firms arguably have more power than the state in determining outcomes on these things do you think that's fair not yet but possibly in the future but i am not one of these guys who says you know facebook and google are the new states or they're super states they share some characteristics with states in that you know they exert power and the like but they're not states and what's more that analysis doesn't give room to the fact that actually technology can make the state more secure and more powerful and i would argue that it has already in this century the best exemplar is china where the awesome powers of technology have been 
almost completely co-opted by the state. And no one is looking at China and saying technology means the end of the state. We might look at instances in the West where, you know, Apple refuses to submit the password to the US government for the iPhone of the San Bernardino terrorist and say, aha, tech firms now hold some of the cards and states don't. But even then, the state managed to hack into that iPhone. And more often than not, you'll find that tech firms in the state cooperate so that the state can share in some of the awesome power bearing that those technologies have. Just to give you a couple of examples, if you search for child pornography on Google, Google will report that automatically to the authorities. And stepping back, what's happened there, the state hasn't purchased that technology. It doesn't regulate that technology. It doesn't own it, but it benefits from it in order to perform its functions, its state-like functions, because Google is cooperating with it. Likewise, it's, it's unconstitutional in the United States for the state to gather enormous amounts of personal data about people through spying, but it is not unconstitutional for the state to purchase such information, which is why there is a colossal industry there of companies who gather together, harvest data from all kinds of corners of the land about individuals, build individual profiles of them, and then sell them to the state. And so there the state, again, benefits from technologies which it doesn't directly own or control, uh, but has been given, as it were, a share in them. Philip Howard, the scholar at Oxford, has this interesting idea of the Pax Technica, and in his book of that title, he talks about you know some of the relationships between states and tech firms and how they might look in the future. I think there's a spectrum. There's a spectrum from the full China, where the distinction between between tech firm and state in terms of who enjoys the power benefits of technology is almost non-existent, and one where tech firms sort of present themselves against the state and as a buffer against state power and state intrusion. And in those circumstances, they are likely to form power bases of their own. And but ultimate power, presumably, where the state is leasing or purchasing information and power, if you like, from a tech firm, the tech firm has the ultimate power in that sense to withhold or, or practice perception control, perhaps, on that information. So does the ultimate reservoir of power become the tech firms, even if that's a benign reservoir? I, I certainly think the tech firms have power resources at their disposal that states in the past wouldn't have imagined the bodies and the private entity would have private sector and the the entities in the private sector would have at the same time if if you believe the snowden revelations in circumstances where the u.s government wanted data that it didn't have access to it just hacked into it from you know yahoo servers and others and so the state will by hook or by crook i think always try and get in on the action and there are obviously tools that the state has at its disposal that can make tech companies lives difficult, changing data laws, changing taxation laws, changing environmental laws, changing product safety laws. So the state has some cards up its sleeve. I think asking where the ultimate power lies is maybe, it it might give rise to answers that aren't complete, because I think power is always shifting. This is such a politician answer, but I do think that power is always shifting, and I don't think there is no final point, there is no end point. And what you'll see in the 21st century is this constant back and forth between tech firms and the state jostling for the awesome power that technology has my suspicion is that the commercial interests of tech firms and the political interests of states will in many cases be sufficiently aligned so that they will find a way through hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news 
right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And to change tack slightly, we began these this series of podcasts thinking about specific technologies and how they might affect politics in a very literal sense. So when will particular technologies start to create situations where people decide how they're going to vote? So you know, will ardent cyclists in London find themselves reacting to mayoral candidates' policies on the use of driverless cars and how much road space would that take up, for example? Which technologies do you think have the greatest potential to influence the kind of day-to-day politics as opposed to the kind of the digital life world as you describe it in the book? Which are the technologies where you think, hang on a minute, I can see people making electoral decisions based on the kind of emotional ins and outs of the application of this technology? Well, you're asking me to perform an analysis which I deliberately do not perform in the book. And the reason I don't is because I think technology is extremely unpredictable. And some technologies that you think are going to be huge turn out not to be. And the way I try to sidestep that in the book, and we'll do so now as well, is by saying instead of looking at individual technologies, look at the, the broad trends. And I, you know, in the book I say there are three, that systems are getting more capable, technology is getting more integrated, and there's more and more data being gathered about us. And so I try to deduce from those three big trends what society in the future might look like. I'm reluctant to deviate from that path, not just because I feel inexpert in doing so, but also because I do feel it is an intellectually honest way of proceeding. I don't think anyone can tell you, oh, yeah, blockchain is going to transform the way that we vote in the future or self-driving cars are the future of road-based travel. I have my suspicions about both of those things, but I certainly don't feel expert enough to make that prediction. What I do feel pretty confident saying, though, is that the broad trends are right. I will bite only to this extent. I think if artificial intelligence develops at the rate that people are expecting it to develop, particularly at the cutting edge, I think that could pretty significantly transform politics. I, I, I think, you know, if it's right that the average desktop size bit of computer costing $1,000 or thereabouts by 2022 or so will have the same processing power as, as all of humanity, which at current rates it would, I mean, it strikes me as bonkers to consider that that's not going to affect the way that we live together and the way that we take collective choices about how we live together. Now, I can't give you the immediate policy implications of it, but that seems to me to be a big one. In the longer term, I think technological unemployment will be obviously something that people 
feel when they go to the ballot box if indeed we still go to ballot boxes in the future um you know if even a quarter of the population can't work because it's more economically efficient to get non-human systems to perform those tasks i think people will form political views about these technologies very quickly and you use the example in the book of you talk about i think is it faraday and gladstone yes yeah um and sort of gladstone as the politician asking well what's the implication of this technology Um, electricity and faraday saying well you can tax it yeah um and the it feels to me that there are probably well at least my understanding of what i read is that you would accept that some of the technologies in development at the moment have the potential to be revolutionary in that sense absolutely okay the book is actually aimed at four categories of people one of the gladstones politicians or people who know a lot about a lot about politics and public policy but don't really understand tech and it's all very well i mean most of them just run a mile when you talk about it and others will say well yes we need to regulate but you know if you're orrin hatch senator orrin hatch and you don't know how facebook makes money without charging its users you're not in my submission in a position to be making laws about how facebook should work then there are faraday's engineers in tech firms who are making decisions which whether they know it or not and often they don't and whether they like it or not which often they don't have social and political and moral implications and I'll maybe come back to that in a second because I think it's a really important point. But but by and large, I think we need our engineers, our software engineers, to realise they are now social engineers, whether they like it or not, and they should be trained as as appropriate. So you shouldn't be able to become a computer scientist without a, a rigorous training in ethics, just like you shouldn't be able to be a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, it's aimed at academics because people still write about political theory as if the world will be the same in 2050 as it was in 1950. I just think that's wrong. Academics are failing in their duty to prepare us for the world. Um, and it makes them irrelevant too often, which is a shame. And finally, it's aimed at citizens, you know, the rest of us, to start seeing technology as citizens rather than just as consumers, recognising that the digital is political and that every new product or gizmo or app that's developed is likely to have some kind of social consequence or be part of some greater trend that does and to make us more aware of it. To return to the question that you asked and the particular problems i think that relate to people who work in the tech industry many of them will claim that they're going to transform the world through what they're doing and many of them do but sometimes there is an issue a where they don't realize that their decisions have political implications and b where when that fact is brought to their attention they are reluctant to accept it so for instance i gave a a lecture at the kennedy school of government at harvard recently and it was a mixed crowd of public policy and tech people And I started talking about Google and I said that, you know, the Google algorithm has some interesting results sometimes so that, you know, if you type in the words, why do Jews, it will often autocorrect your sentence, auto finish your sentence with the words have big noses or like money so much. Or if you type in an African-American name, it will come up with background checks for criminal um, convictions. Now, these results, Google says, do not occur because Google is anti-Semitic or racist. They occur because the algorithm neutrally reflects what other people have found useful in the past. So the reason it auto-finishes your sentence is because many sentences that began that way have ended that way. And the reason it contains background checks for African-American names is that many people who search for African-American names are searching for background checks. Assuming that Google is right about that, though, I don't say that's the end of the argument. I say that what you've chosen is to deploy a neutral algorithm that amplifies and recreates forms of injustice in the world in the form of prejudice about how we see each other and whether you like it or not google that is a political decision a neutral algorithm 
which faithfully reproduces racism is a choice. Neutrality is a political principle, and it's not always a good political principle. It's not always a good one. So when the elephant is standing on the tail of the mouse, as Desmond Tutu says, and you say you're neutral, the mouse isn't going to thank you. Neutrality, um, Elie Wiesel says, often favours the oppressor. So I think Google at least have to answer the question about why they wouldn't engineer their system in a way that corrects for the racial injustice rather than amplifies it. You may consider eventually that it shouldn't, but they have to at least accept that that is a question they have to answer because they have chosen the principle of neutrality. Now, any political philosopher listening to this discussion would immediately recognize what I'm saying. They'd say that concepts like neutrality and impartiality are controversial sometimes. Sometimes they're, they're the principle you'd want. So when you go to a court of law and a judge is deciding between two parties, other times they're not. For instance, when you want to redistribute between rich and poor in society or between strong and weak. So what I said to that guy in Harvard, well, he put up his hand, this engineer, and he just said, well, you know, you're making me into a politician. I didn't go into politics. And my answer to him was, well, you've gone into politics, actually. You just didn't realize it because you write algorithms that affect us in ways that are by any reasonable measure political. And once you take on that mantle and take on that responsibility, people like me are going to say that actually you need to be able to justify the decisions that you make, the code that you write, according to recognize moral and political principles as well as according to technical ones or commercial ones and if political power and political action has moved into the realm of the the google engineer rather than being closer to the kind of realms of government as it has been in the past what then is the right response for government to try and wrest back its relevance in that arena because it seems to me that government wouldn't intrinsically be able to do much to affect the decisions that google that the google engineer takes for example but actually they're being as you rightly say as political as perhaps a member of parliament might be in how they think about outcomes or don't think about outcomes so really i guess what i'm really asking is what do you think are the right steps for government to be taking right now to try and remain as relevant and influential on those political actions which are taken well outside of traditional sphere of government influence yes i mean Government should never strive to be relevant for the sake of being relevant. The question is, could governments be doing more to rectify the harmful aspects of technology insofar as they relate to democracy, the health of our democracy, or the extent of our freedom, or the quality of our social justice? Could government be doing more? And if so, what? And the answer is yes, government could be doing more. Before we get there though i'd like to see a change in the way that tech firms behave to avoid the need for regulation and laws but you know in some respects we already have governments stepping in so the gdpr which we have in europe is you know the best data protection i'll phrase that in more neutral terms it's the most robust data protection system in the world and that was something passed at a supranational level and it means that companies like google and facebook have to behave differently in the european continent as they do in the United States and and, you know you can disagree with some aspects of the GDPR but they've they've regulated that you have the right to be forgotten in Europe and you don't have that in the United States Senator Dianne Feinstein is introducing a law in the United States to regulate the use of political chatbots you know so that they have to identify themselves as chatbots and who pays for them and the like and if that law passes America will be better protected from that technology than we are the, the answer is not rocket science. If technologies and those who wield them lead to outcomes which we consider unacceptable, then one response 
is for the state to step in and regulate them. But I make no bones of the fact that I don't think our politicians are currently in a place to do that. And I think the, the consequence could be more harm than good just now. But that's why I go around banging the drum about this stuff. Because when the time comes, we need to trust that our politicians at least have a grasp of the underlying technologies and the issues. And, you know, the laws that they put in place will respond to individual public policy problems, whether, whether they relate to fake news or extremism or foreign influence on elections, those three relating to democracy, whether they relate to the uses to, to which technologies are put. You know, some people may think you shouldn't be allowed to have sex with a child in virtual reality. There'll have to be a law for that if you think that that is the case. We may have to pass laws regulating what algorithms do for the reasons I discussed earlier, so that they don't distort our other missions of social justice. But, you know, you started your question by saying, you know, that Google and tech firms and the like have power rather than Parliament. I don't think it's a rather than. I just think that Parliament hasn't woken up to it yet. Governments haven't woken up to it yet. And to an extent that's understandable, I'm not one of those people who says that the world has already been completely transformed. But I do think if you project five or ten years into the future, that's absolutely where we're heading and governments need to catch up. And on that, we've talked about social justice and the related concept is around equality. Um, and you write in the book about something called the wealth cyclone, which I might ask you to explain in a moment. But um, when I initially looked at that, I thought, well, is this going to elaborate from the kind of Piketty argument that if you own capital and you own things, you're going to be able to make money more quickly than if you're just working? Is that the is that the kind of view that you elaborate on in the book? It is, and that is at the heart of it. I mean, look, ec- economic theories are hostages to fortune because sometimes the underlying conditions change. But I, I make a number of observations about technology and the way that the economy is changing and say that they point to a world in which a, a very small number of people get very rich while the rest of us suffer. You start with the, the Piketty principle, which is that in the long run, generally, it pays more to own stuff than to do stuff. So you get higher returns on capital than you do on labor. If you add to that the fact that machines are and systems are getting increasingly good at doing the things that we work at, you know, the things that we previously required human labor for, then you see that in the future, an increasing amount of society's wealth will, f- will flow to those who own those technologies, th- those particular forms of capital, whether it's servers or data or ideas. And so again, you've got a class of people who are getting richer, not just because they own capital, but because they own the capital that's actually taking away people's jobs. If you add to that the fact that a lot of technology is heavily influenced by network effects, so, you know, what makes Facebook valuable is not its purple interface or the genius of the buttons or the like function. It's the it's fact that... Is it purple? I always thought it was blue. It might be blue. <laughs> Maybe I'm colorblind. That might be the big releva- revelation of this uh, this interview. I always thought it was, I genuinely actually thought it was purple. I, I would, I'd be interested to know if people think it's blue. <laughs> I wonder if we. I wonder if this is a, uh, a, been, a yellow and black dress. Yeah, situation. I haven't been on in a while, but uh, now now that's all I can think about. I didn't mean to interrupt your flow. Um, okay, so it's blue or purple interface. W- what makes it valuable is that, valuable is that there are 2.2 billion members of it, and that Facebook can use all that data to train its AI systems and the like, and Google, you know, gets 60,000 searches a second and can do the same. But but it's the very size of those companies that makes them valuable, which means that to, to rival them is difficult because you have to achieve massive size, which is why most tech startups these days really just hope to be bought in the in the medium term by the big companies, and they do buy heavily 
tech startups. So there is a tendency towards monopoly because of the network effects caused by technology. And at the same time, there is a pattern in these mega firms, which is that unlike the very wealthy companies of the past, the major industrial centers of the past, they actually employ relatively few people. And the value of a company like Instagram is wildly disproportionate to the number of people it has uh, working for it at the time that it was bought. So if you look at a combination of those four things, capital makes more money than labor. It's going to make even more money in the future as against labor because capital is going to start doing things that labor used to do. The network effects favor monopolies, so the concentration of capital in the hands of relatively few people, relatively few companies. And then within those companies, you actually have relatively few people as compared to, say, the great car companies of the past in Detroit or the like. You could foresee a world where absent any intervention, wealth really flows to the very small number of people who own and control the very concentrated amounts of technological capital that generate wealth in the economy. That's what I call the wealth cyclone. It's stylized, but that's a sort of pattern, a risk that I highlight. And you end the book on a quote about a generation that begins a revolution rarely lives to see the end. That's right, right, Jefferson. My question is, to what degree do we need a revolution in its purest sense, or do we just need an evolution? Well, I don't think now is the time for us to be overthrowing democratic institutions of government. I think they're under enough strain as it is, and I think that we need to try and do democracy in a better way, in particular by tackling some of the ways that technology is eroding it. So I don't call for a political revolution. I think we're going through a kind of power revolution for the reasons I described earlier. So the political scientists will look back at this era and identify it as a time when power really shifted from one place in society to another. Technology is changing according mostly to market forces, and it's changing more rapidly than our ability to adjust to it. So we need a revolution in thought, as John Stuart Mill put it, we need to start seeing tech for what it is and what it's doing to us and doing to the way we live together. And only then will we be able to properly diagnose our condition and come up with policies and regulations and principles that are satisfactory to a large number of people. So there's going to be lots of different roles in, in, the, fu- in the future for people who are concerned about politics. But, you know, that the great ideological debate of the last century was what should be done by the state and what should be left to the market and civil society. And that was the question that divided the Eastern Hemisphere from the Western and within those societies, the right from the left. I think our generation will have to deal with a different question, which is to what extent should our lives be governed by powerful digital systems and on what terms? And to answer that question is, is a role for philosophers and intellectuals, it's a role for lawyers and policy wonks, it's a role for activists and hackers and coders. And yeah, it's a society-wide change that we need if we are to make technology our slave rather than our master. And I always try to end on an optimistic point. And if I, if I were to take a pessimistic view of your book i would see i would see power now residing in places where there are less checks and balances on it i would see greater restrictions on our freedoms i would see wealth concentrated in the hands of very few jobs eroded by technology it it, it leads more towards it's more on the dystopian half of the table than the utopian half of the table at this moment in time so what in all of your experience and the research that you did for the book gives you the greatest grounds for optimism that we can we can get a grip on this and turn it around the reason i see i wouldn't say that i'm optimistic but i wouldn't say that i'm pessimistic either 
the thing that struck me most clearly from my research was that we've we've not really been trying to tackle this problem intellectually or morally you know our tech has evolved much faster than our ideas and definitely not politically in terms of our laws and regulation so it's no surprise to me that left to itself we're looking to the future and thinking crikey this might not end up so well but it's the same with almost anything that, that is generated in the private sector or in the, in the in the public sphere and then later requires tweaking and fiddling and monitoring and controlling so what gives me my lack of pessimism as opposed to my optimism is that I still think we have everything to fight for. I think the battle is a generational one and it has only just begun. And I'd like to see us give it a real crack before we start saying we're heading towards a dystopia. I do think it's important that people say if we if we don't do anything, you know, here's what might happen. But that's if we don't do anything. So let's do something. And who's doing the best things that you've seen? Again, um, it depends which social role you're talking about there are scholars at the Bertman Klein Center for Internet and Society in Harvard which is where I wrote this book who are doing the best scholarly research at the intersection of science and the social sciences there are some politicians not many in the developed world who are banging the drum about this stuff I'm not going to name names partly because it would just be so depressing there are some a growing number of intellectuals and philosophers public thinkers who are trying to develop the language and the ideas that help us address some of this stuff. I do think that the digital guys at Demos here in the UK, uh, led by Jamie Bartlett, do a good job of raising awareness in a serious and sober way about some problems that tech is causing. And on the kind of activist front, a lot of that stuff takes place behind the scenes. You know, there are hackers and there are uh, hackers for good and there are charities who are trying to develop apps that improve the political situation and and the like and, and there, you know there are many of those and parties that are using technology in interesting ways you know like the use of liquid democracy the idea that you can delegate your vote on a particular issue using digital voting it's kind of interesting and innovative so in all spheres we're beginning to see a bubbling of interest and activism but there is no society-wide or cultural movement yet i think there will be Great. Uh, you gave me a brilliant opportunity to plug the fact that we've had Jamie Bartlett holds the he holds the record of being the only person to appear on the podcast twice. Uh, there are two Jamie Bartlett episodes. What a one, guy! One's called "The People Versus Tech." The other is called "Can Things Get Even Worse?" Um, Jamie now definitely comfortably the most popular name of interviewees on Government versus the Robots. Thanks Jamie's very much. Jamie's leading the way. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining me. I know you've got hot footed to the airport, so it's much appreciated. Thank you for having me. That's all from Government versus the Robots this week. Hopefully, you've enjoyed the episode. As ever, if you've enjoyed it, please do tell your friends about it. You can follow us on Twitter at G-O-V-T underscore V-S underscore robots. My thanks to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production of this podcast, and we'll see you again next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.